0: All right, we're continuing our look at the attributes of God. You'll remember last Sunday we talked about the goodness of God and the love of God. And I had mentioned last Sunday that goodness is kind of this overarching term and it encompasses quite a few different attributes. And so today we're going to continue talking about his goodness, but we're just going to talk about different aspects of his goodness, specifically grace, mercy, and patience, We'll spend most of our time this morning on grace, because if you understand grace and you understand the the characteristics of grace, the other two, all those same things will kind of carry into those other two. Let's talk about God's grace first. And as usual, let me give you a definition because definitions are important. Lewis Burkhoff said, God's grace is the unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. You'll remember last week we said that goodness, the goodness of God, is his benevolence to his creatures. God being kind to his creatures. The love of God is his goodness displayed towards rational creatures. When we talk about the grace of God, we're still talking about the goodness and the love of God. But it's the goodness and the love of God not to just creatures in general or to creatures who are rational, but it's the goodness and love of God to those creatures who have forfeited the right to claim God's goodness. To those who have um, walked away from His goodness, who are undeserving of His goodness and His love. They are under a sentence of condemnation. These are people who should not receive Goodness and love from God because they are opposed to God. They are at enmity with God. Wayne Grudem gives a little bit of a shorter definition. He says, God's grace means God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Grace isn't just God giving you something good. That's his goodness. Grace is God giving you something good that you do not deserve. You deserve the exact opposite of what he's giving you. All of God's grace is unmerited and undeserved. He is never obligated to give grace to anyone. He gives grace by his own will to whomever he desires. Exodus 33, 19, and he said, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. It's never obligated. He's never required to show grace to anyone for any reason. He doesn't need to be conjoined into being gracious. You don't need to convince him to be gracious. He is by nature very gracious. And he shows his goodness to those who are undeserving, to those who do not earn his grace, who do not earn his goodness. Matthew 5:45 so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We looked at this verse last week when we talked about God's goodness. And it was a display of God's goodness just that he gave rain and sunlight to all of his creatures. But this week as we consider God's grace, we're looking at this that he's doing this for people who are unrighteous. He's showing his kindness to people who do not deserve it who deserve for him not to give them rain, but to give them fire and brimstone. He's giving them what they do not deserve. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's grace is most evidently manifested to his people. He gives grace to all in the sense of he gives rain and good things to all people. But that grace is most clearly shown and most clearly evidenced in the lives of people who follow after him and who are his own, to his elect. Psalm 119, 132, the psalmist says, Turn to me and be gracious to me. After your manner and those who love your name. Now in Psalm 119, he uses the name of Yahweh quite a bit. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It was Yahweh who made the covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses. It's Yahweh who made the new covenant that we are partakers of. And he says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give me what I don't deserve. Give me the good things that I cannot earn for myself, that I cannot obtain for myself. Give those things to me. Why would he ask him to do this? What right does he have to turn to God and say, God, give me what I don't deserve? He has no right to say that. But he appeals to one thing. He says, after your manner with those who love your name. The psalmist identifies himself as part of God's covenant people. God made promises to the nation of Israel. He promised to bless them, to care for them. He said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And the psalmist in Psalm 119 appeals to that and says, look, I'm part of your covenant people. And I'm just asking you to behave in a a manner consistent with the promises that you have already made. The psalmist says, I love your name. I love you, God. But is he saying here, look, I love your name, thus you must show me grace? Is he saying that God is obligated to him? No, he's not saying that. He's only saying that God is obligated in the sense that God has already made a promise. The obligation is not because the psalmist loves him. The obligation is because God promised him. He made a covenant. It's not because of works that the person does. God isn't gracious to us because we are somehow good in and of ourselves. Because we somehow earned it or deserve it. He's gracious because that is his nature. And some will say, well, no, I think it's something that we can earn. Like the nation of Israel. They were chosen. They were elect of God. God chose them for a reason. And there must be something about Israel that led God to choose them, to show his grace to them. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's grace was demonstrated to Israel by choosing them. He could have chosen any group of people on the earth. He chose Israel. Therefore, some people think, There must be something about Israel that God liked, that God approved of. Maybe, maybe the thing that God really liked about Israel is that they were bigger than other nations, they were stronger than other nations. Maybe there was something good about the size of their nation. Well, no, that can't be it because the very next verse, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. When God chose the nation of Israel, it was one guy in his family, Abram. And that's it. When Israel went into Egypt, there was a total of 70 people. It wasn't because they were bigger than everybody else. They were the smallest. They were the weakest. They had nothing to show God and go to God with and say, Look, you ought to choose us because of whatever, fill in the blank. Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. God set his love, his grace on Israel not because they deserved it. Not because they were worthy of it. It was simply because of his own goodness. His unmerited favor that he placed upon that nation. And it was for no other reason than that. And some will say, well, actually I think it's because Abram was righteous. Abram lived a holy life. And the nation of Israel was righteous. And that's why God chose the nation of Israel, because they were righteous. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. Deuteronomy is written right before the nation of Israel goes into the promised land. And God has made them promise after promise after promise. Look, I'm going to dispossess all the people in that land. They are going to fall before you. You are going to inherit this land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses here just reminds them. It's not because you are so righteous and so good that God is going to do this for you. You didn't earn this. It's not because of you. Very next verse. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. How many times has that been true of us? I mean, if you read through like Numbers, Exodus, just over and over and over again, going back to the same old sin time after time after time. And yet God still withholds the punishment we deserve. Even for Israel, time after time after time, they continually go back to the same old sin, the same old idolatry, and God continually gives them favor and blessing they do not deserve. And Moses isn't going to let them off the hook easy here. Is not just that he's going to tell them it's, because, it's not because of your righteousness. He's going to remind them of how unrighteous they have been. Deuteronomy 9, verse 7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Hey, Israel, don't forget Think back to what you've been doing the last 40 years in the wilderness. From the day God delivered you from Egypt, Israel, you have been rebelling against him. You have been running into sin. You built this golden calf and started worshiping it. You were committing shameful acts of idolatry and immorality. This isn't because you're not going into this land because you somehow earned it. God should have wiped you, off the planet, wiped you off the face of the planet a long time ago. Their transgressions were so great that they should have been destroyed. God should have judged them. Deuteronomy 9, verse 8. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Horib here is a reference back to Exodus 32, the golden calf. Psalm 106, 19-22 also says this is the golden calf incident. They deserve judgment. They deserve God's wrath. And they didn't receive it. God did not give it to them. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. In this one verse, we have all three of the attributes we're going to talk about today. Gracious is God's grace, compassionate is His mercy, slow to anger is His patience. All of them are connected. The Lord is gracious, He gives grace to those who do not deserve it. Any goodness we receive from God is the result of God being gracious. Israel wasn't the only one, the only nation, to receive some grace. I have one other nation that received some grace here. There's others, but the nation of Nineveh. You guys remember the story of Nineveh? Jonah was sent to go to Nineveh and he decided he didn't really want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to see those people saved. So he decides to flee to Tarshish. What was the reason Jonah fled to Tarshish? Jonah 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, this being the salvation of Nineveh, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious And compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Nineveh didn't deserve to be spared. They deserved the judgment that God was about to bring upon them. Jonah was arguing for God's justice in the case of Nineveh. But instead, God gave them what they didn't deserve, He spared them. He gave them grace. Okay, so nations don't earn it. But aren't there some people in the Bible who were good and righteous people? You know, especially in the Old Testament, weren't there some people who were righteous in and of themselves and that they could possibly earn God's grace in some way? Like Noah, Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You guys know the story of Noah. We're not going to go through it. Noah and his family were spared from the flood. God goes to Noah and says, Look, I'm going to flood the earth. Everyone's going to die. Build an ark. So Noah starts building this ark. And why does God tell him that? Because he found favor. This is the word, the Hebrew word he used here is the word for grace undeserved, unmerited favor. God spared Noah and his family. And you say, well, wait a minute. Hang on a second. That's not unmerited. That's not undeserved. Because we're in Genesis 6-8. Genesis 6-9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Therefore, not grace. Noah deserved this. Noah earned this through his good behavior, through his righteousness. I mean, look, he walked with God. Well, does the rest of scriptures confirm that Noah was righteous to the extent that Noah was perfect? Because we understand that God's standard is perfection. And just one little sin is enough to destroy it. Is that what the rest of scripture says about Noah? Well, after the flood in Before that, in Genesis 6-5, Moses describes the people at the time. And he says their hearts were only evil continually. uh, Noah here is described as being righteous. The flood happens, Genesis 8, they get off the boat. Noah makes a sacrifice to God. Genesis 8 verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who's he talking about? There's only one guy left on the planet, no one his family. There's no one else. His heart, his mind, is evil from his youth. And if we go back, this statement here at the end, "Noah walked with God." The grammar here in the Hebrew would indicate this is not a walk of perfection. It's kind of like in 1 John when he says, if if you live in sin or if you practice sin, it's not talking about if you ever commit one single little sin. It's not talking about a walk of perfection. This is talking about a direction of his life. Noah wasn't perfect. His lifestyle wasn't perfect. You could say this is a righteousness relative to the people around him just in the same way you and I are not perfect. But let's prove that. Let's prove that Noah wasn't perfect. Genesis 9, verse 20. Then Noah began farming and plants at a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Drunkenness. Then and today was sin. So in what sense was Noah righteous? He was righteous because he believed in God. He was righteous because he had faith in that righteousness was imputed to him. The same way your righteousness is imputed to you. Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and here it is, and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Righteousness given through faith. Ephesians 2 says that is God's grace. Unmerited, undeserved. If your righteousness has to be imputed to you, you obviously did not deserve it. You did not earn it. Like you and I, Noah was a recipient of the same grace, that same unmerited favor that God gives. But then there's another guy, Abram. Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the land of Ur and makes him a whole bunch of stunning promises. And some will say, well, this is because Abram was obedient. Abram behaved well. He did good things. But I want you to notice something before I read this. I want you to notice something that all of these promises are unilateral. They're unilateral. They're one-way promises. It's God saying, this is what I'm going to do. But there's no real obligation on Abram to do anything. And I just want to show that to you by just looking at the first person personal pronouns all the times God says, I. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Unilateral promises to be enacted and fulfilled by God alone God promises Abram a land he promises to make him a great nation to give him a great name and through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed now why is God going to do that for Abram what is it that Abram has done to earn that from God well, some will say Abraham was a righteous man. He was like Noah. He walked with God. He was truly pious. He followed after Yahweh the best he could. You might think of that until you get to Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor and they served other gods. Abraham's father, you can go back into Genesis 11 and see his father was named Terah, his brother's name was Nahor. They, plural, those three served other gods. Before he was called Abram was an idolater. In the same way everyone else on the world in the world was. They were False worshippers. Okay, maybe it's not for his piety. That's not why God chose him. He got the religion part wrong. Maybe it's he received these promises because he obeyed the command to leave. Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. There we go. Abraham was obedient. He must have earned these promises by his obedience. God told him to go, and so he went. But again, book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Does the book of Hebrews say that Abraham's obedience was somehow meritorious? The book of Hebrews says that Abraham's obedience was simply his faith being lived out. It's him living out his faith. The promises that God made to Abram were sovereign, unilateral promises of God given to Abram and to his descendants. They were goodness and kindness that they could not deserve and they could not earn for themselves. Out of an abundance of grace, God treated Abram as though he were righteous. Like every other person in history who has ever been saved, Abram was saved through an imputation of righteousness. Righteousness being credited to him. A righteousness he could not earn for himself. Genesis fifteen six. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Undeserved, unmerited. Yeah, Ephesians 2 says faith is a gift from God. It's grace. In the New Testament, God's grace is displayed as being unmerited and unearned as well. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The term free gift here is the Greek word charis. It's translated 121 times as grace. Salvation is to result, when God saves, it's to result in you praising and worshiping him for his grace, for his undeserved kindness. Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Salvation should result in you praising God, it should result in true worship. But I want you to note something. Notice he says, freely bestowed. No obligations, no requirements, no prerequisites, no payments, freely given. Nothing for you to do. It is God's grace that brings about forgiveness. It brings about redemption. Ephesians 1, verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Forgiveness, redemption is the result of, of the riches of his grace. Not the poverty of his grace. Not the lack of his grace. The riches. An abundance. And he says, look, which he lavished on us. The term here, lavish, refers to an abundance. To abound. Overflowing with grace. More grace than you could ever possibly need. God's grace does more than just save. Save. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is, in, which is in Christ. Your right standing with God, your justification with God, God declaring you to be righteous is an act of grace. It's a free gift. It costs you Nothing. It required nothing from you. It cost Jesus quite a bit. And if it's not you, that means it cannot be your works. Romans eleven six. 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If grace is undeserved, unmerited favor, that means it cannot be the result of your works. There are some who say that you are saved by believing and by working. And through doing works, you earn grace. You just denied the definition of what grace is. It cannot be works plus grace or faith plus works. It's either by grace or it's by works. It can't be both. And salvation in the Bible is described as being an act of God's grace, unmerited and undeserved. And that grace is always through Christ. Romans 4.4, 4, now to him, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. If it's a gift, we've got a lot of parents in the room. I know we, we have the old Christmas song, Santa's making a list, and he's checking it twice, and he's going to see who's naughty and nice. And if you're naughty, you're supposed to get a stocking full of coal. Has anyone ever actually done that? When you were kids, did anyone ever wake up and you had a stocking full of coal? No. You give gifts. Gifts aren't earned. You don't do works for them. Because if your child has to work for the gift, it's no longer a gift, is it? It's a wage. He earned it. That's his argument here. If you have to work for it, then salvation is a payment made for services rendered. It's a payment to you for what you've done. It's not grace anymore. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace is most clearly manifest and demonstrated in the person and the work of Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Grace excludes the possibility of works. God gives goodness and kindness to those who are undeserving. And it's not just in salvation, it's also in comfort and care. First Peter, he's talking to Christians who are suffering through persecution. And he's talking to people who are enduring pain and trials. And he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's the God of all grace. His grace is intended to comfort his people. And his grace today is available to those who are in Christ. Those who believe in Jesus. They will receive the fullest measure of God's grace. God has given you something that you do not deserve. He's given me something I don't deserve. Something that we could not earn. And this grace is communicable. We're talking about a communicable attribute. God is gracious and he expects us to be gracious to give to each other things that we do not deserve. Colossians 3, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. No one ever earns forgiveness. Because if you're really mad about what they did, there's nothing they're going to be able to do to earn it from you. You didn't earn forgiveness. So if you're going to forgive someone, you have to give them something they don't deserve. You have to give them grace. This is also manifest in how we speak to others. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. He explains this a little bit more in Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Sometimes a sharp rebuke is what we want to do, but it's not what the person needs. They need you to give them some grace. Give them what they don't deserve, what they cannot earn from you. All right. That's God's grace. Questions or comments? Let's go to God's mercy. There are distinctions between God's grace, mercy, and patience. They are distinct. But there's also a lot of overlap. Okay, So these next two aren't going to be anywhere near as long as the first one, because a lot of that is the groundwork you need. There is overlap, but I do want to make some distinctions between grace and mercy. God's grace views man as being guilty. And because man is guilty, he needs forgiveness. And God's grace provides him what he needs, not what he deserves. God's mercy views man as bearing the consequences of sin. And because he's bearing the consequences of sin, he is in a pitiable condition. He is to be pitied. And because he is bearing the consequences of sin, because he's in this pitiable condition... He needs divine help. God's mercy is his compassion on sinners who are suffering, who are in a pitiable condition. And it drives him to want to help those individuals. Louis Burkhoff said it may be defined as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts. Notice again, goodness or love, we're still talking about goodness here. It's still an element of his goodness. The mercy of God pictures God as being compassionate, taking pity on someone who is suffering. And his mercy makes them ready to relieve their distress and their misery. And I want you to notice that last part. Irrespective of their deserts it doesn't matter what they've actually earned. They may have actually earned the miserable condition that they're in. But that miserable condition still incites God's goodness and his care and his compassion. Biblical doctrine defines it this way. God's mercy describes him as as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures, i.e. people, such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition, even though they do not deserve it, just like with grace. Undeserved, unmerited. But when you're reading your Bible, like the NASB doesn't always use the term mercy. It uses a couple of other words that describe this. One of them is compassion or compassionate. Exodus 34:6, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Compassionate. That's referring to his mercy, to his kindness to those who are suffering. It's a description of God's nature. He is by nature merciful and compassionate to those who are in misery. Joel Beakey said the word is related to the, to the term for a mother's womb and expresses the compassion of a mother or father for a child. It's a very descriptive word. Israel, for a while, thought that God had forgotten about her. They were in exile. They thought, God's done with us, He doesn't love us anymore, we're under his wrath. Isaiah 49, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And he's not saying a mother is, it's never possible for a mother to forget her child. Because of the sin nature, it is possible for a human mother to forget her child. It's just very unlikely. And he says look, human mothers might forget, human parents might forget. But God, your father, will never forget you. Even if you're in misery, even if you are miserable even if you've earned that miserable state. Psalm 103, verse 13, Just as a father has compassion on his children, as a father has mercy on his children, so the Lord has mercy or compassion on those who fear him. Same word used in Exodus, describing God's mercy. This term here, compassion, eight times is translated as mercy, 33 times it's translated as compassion. God is described as being full of mercy, full of compassion. Another word he uses is loving kindness. Psalm 57:10 for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. The difference here between loving kindness and compassion is that loving kindness doesn't refer just to mercy. It refers to the covenant obligations. It refers to the promises that God has made. God has made promises to be kind, to be gracious to Israel, to his people. And loving kindness is his faithfulness to those promises. And in those promises is a promise of mercy. And God will be faithful to that. When David was faced with God's judgment, you guys remember this? David goes and does a census and he's not supposed to. 2 Samuel. And God says, look, I'm going to bring judgment for this. And he gives them three bad options. It's like when your parents told you to go cut your own switch. <laughs> People were laughing, did this. And you have to figure out which one is going to be the least painful. That's kind of what God did. He said, all right, you have three choices for judgment, and all of them are horrible options. You read those, and you're like, I wouldn't want to choose any of them. And David had the same problem. He didn't want to choose any of them either. And so David, knowing God, knowing God's mercy and his compassion, puts himself in God's hands. 2 Samuel 24, verse 14. I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. It would be better... David says, for me to fall into the hands of an angry wrathful God who is merciful than for me to fall into the hands of sinful man who has no mercy. Even in judgment, God's mercy is far better than anything in the world. And he says it would be better in your mercy for you to choose the best one than for me to pick. And he leaves it up to God. In Nehemiah, they were returning back to Israel. The people go back to confess their sins to the Lord. And they, in their explanation in Nehemiah 9, they explain why God did not destroy Israel. We were talking about earlier Israel in the wilderness. Why did God not wipe them out? Nehemiah 9:19. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them on their way in which they were to go. In your great compassion, in your great mercy. To lack in mercy, to not have mercy, is to give people what they deserve, what they've earned. In this situation, it would be to leave them to their own devices. If God wasn't merciful, He would have looked on Israel in their pitiable condition, and they were in a really bad condition. They were in the wilderness, they had no food, they had no water, and they were running headlong into sin. Bad situation. If God had no mercy, He would have said, You know what? I'm just going to give you what you deserve. No more water, no more food, and I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to leave you to yourselves. And if you guys want to try to track your way back to Egypt, go for it. To lack mercy is to lack pity, to lack compassion for another person. And it is God's mercy, his compassion for those who are in a state of misery that led him to forgive sin. David understood this. In Psalm 51, he went back to confess his sins. He said, be gracious to me, O God, according to your lovingkindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Loving kindness, according to your loving kindness, according to the promises that you have already made, according to the covenant you have already made, be merciful to me. And according to the greatness of your compassion. There he's pointing back to God's nature as being merciful. Act according to the promises you've made and act according to your own nature. Be gracious to me. It's a wise move on his part. On David's part. To trust in the mercy of God is always a wise thing. Lamentations 3. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. Lamentations are written while he was lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. And even in the destruction of his nation, he says, look... The mercies and the compassions of God never fail. God's mercy is often demonstrated after divine chastening. God chastens, and then he has mercy. Isaiah 54 verse 8, In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with an everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you. I brought judgment. I brought discipline upon you. But I will have compassion. You might be under the discipline of God. You might be running headlong into sin. And God might be chastening you. And that should be a comfort to you because he hasn't left you alone yet. But even in the chastening, understand that chastening is meant to get you to come back and to call upon the mercy of God. And if you would just turn back, you will find mercy. The New Testament writers speak of God's mercy as the source of all mercy. 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. If you're facing the discipline of God, go back and find mercy and comfort. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, talked about the abundance of God's mercy. He says, There is not more light in the sun, there is not more water in the sea, than there is mercy in the Father of mercies. God is holy, yes, but He is also abundantly merciful. We can see this mercy demonstrated in the life of Christ. Matthew 9, Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Dispirited, distressed, in a miserable condition. And the compassion and the mercy of God comes out of Christ. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. The same mercy and compassion that you see in the life of Christ throughout the Gospels is demonstrated in Christ as His work as high priest. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. You know, God could have saved you in a million different ways. He had options. And He chose to send Christ to the world to be tempted in every way. And I would say He was probably tempted far more than you and I. You know, I have a threshold. You tempt me enough, eventually I'm going to fall. Christ had no threshold. There was never a point that he would fall. And once I cross that threshold and I go into sin, the temptation stops. With no threshold, the temptation just keeps going. It just keeps growing and magnifying. Getting worse and worse and worse. Christ was tempted in all things just as we are. Why? So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. Not so that he can learn something. Not so he can learn to be merciful but so that you would recognize that he is merciful. That he understands exactly what you're going through. And that if you run back to him, you're running back to a person who knows what you're dealing with, who knows what you're going through, and you will find mercy. John Calvin said, the recognition of your own sinfulness is what leads you to run to God's mercy. Here's what he said. Thus it finally comes to pass that man, thoroughly frightened by the awareness of eternal death, which he sees as justly threatening him because of his own unrighteousness, betakes himself to God's mercy alone as the only haven of safety. You recognize how sinful you are? The mercy of God is a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. All right. Any questions? Comments? Okay. God's patience. Also known as as, as long suffering. Uh, Joel Beaky said, "Long suffering implies God's desire to seek peace and forgive, rather than retaliate quickly, or to reserve His wrath until the right time to execute justice." Writer of the Hebrew says that God is slow to anger, <clears throat> abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Slow to anger, He's patient. He endures the offense. He endures the sin. He gives time for you to repent, for you to turn back. I don't know about you, but God was patient with me for over 30 years. He was patient with Israel for even longer. (laughs) Because they were a nation. His patience, his long-suffering results in delaying his judgment, delaying justice. And that delay isn't weakness, it's a form of kindness. And if God is delaying judgment for you, don't take it as weakness. Take it as an act of kindness and don't disregard it. Romans 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. His patience and his foregoing judgment is meant to bring people to repentance. God waits patiently for the sinner, calling them to repent. And if they don't repent, judgment comes. First Peter 3.20 Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. How long did it take him to build the ark? It was like 600 years. Patient enduring, waiting for them as they continually offend and offend and offend and offend. And only eight people made it out alive. Paul describes the patience and long-suffering of God as being perfect. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, "...the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." He desires that all would repent, and he gives them time, abundant amount of time. And Paul even sees God's patience in his own life, 1 Timothy 1, 16. Yet for this reason I have found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul, this persecutor of the church, this guy who went around killing Christians, says, look, I'm the example. God was perfectly patient with me. And he's patient with you too. If you would just turn back. If you would just repent and turn to Christ. Samuel Willard described it this way. Sin is contrary to the holy nature of God. And therefore he might justly break forth in fury upon the least sin committed. God should have killed me a long time ago. The first time I sinned, his justice demanded my death. But patience moderates his anger, holds it back, so that he withholds the deserved punishment. And for this reason, it is that the sinner does not upon the spot die. Or The sinner dies not upon the spot. It's because of his patience that I didn't die a long time ago. That you didn't die the first time you sinned. It's because of his long suffering. And we are called to be just as patient with other people. God is patient with you. He's patient with me. James 1.19, this you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Giving people grace and giving them time to learn, to grow, to mature. We're to be patient not only with other people around us, patient in suffering, 1 Peter 2. It's actually an astounding passage in 1 Peter 2. He's talking about Nero. Nero's burning Christians, killing people. And he says, you're to honor the king. You're to patiently endure. is what he says here, bottom second to last line. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it for this finds favor with God. To be patient here means you're not grumbling against God. We don't charge him with negligence and say, oh well, God's just forgotten about me. God's abusing me or he just doesn't care. Patience means we, we acknowledge that it's for our own good. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. You guys know these. I'm not going to read them again. It's what God does in you if you have the Spirit in you, you're doing what Galatians 5.16 says. You're walking by the Spirit. Patience is a reality in your life. Patience is a demonstration of love. If you're impatient with family members, you need to check your love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. God is patient. He waits for you. He's long-suffering. He endures your sin over and over and over again. It's a demonstration of His grace. You don't deserve it. It's 10 o'clock, so if anyone has any questions you'd like to come and ask me, you can ask me as soon as we're done with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much uh, that You have demonstrated Yourself and shown Yourself to be God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of patience, that you endure our sin, that you endure our offenses against you, Uh, not because you are unholy, not because that you do not love holiness and righteousness, but because you are a merciful God, and you call us to repentance, that you have provided for us salvation in Christ. You have paid our sins. You have paid our debt. You paid those through Christ, through his death on the cross. And this morning we get to worship you, we get to praise you, and to think on the resurrection that we have truly been liberated from our sins. Christ has overcome death, hell, and the grave. It is the greatest sign of your mercy and your grace. And so we just ask that you would help us to worship you this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.